Our New Testament lesson for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, the first chapter, beginning at verse 18. So listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness, is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was once attending a comedy show where they do a series of those improv skits, something akin to the old show, Whose Line Is It Anyway?, and there were four trained comedians on stage who had rehearsed all of these different scenarios and skits for the audience. And they were all mostly unscripted, and the cre creative imaginations of the comedians would take you on this journey from out west to outer space to a bus stop all in the midst of, a sa of the same skit. And we're all laughing and having a great time. And then they get to the part of the show where they ask for audience participation. And they say, we're looking for four members to come up on the stage with us and participate in this next game. And they, of course, won't tell you anything about the scenario or the situation or what's required. They're just looking for some gullible volunteers. And the friend that I was with kept, like, trying to raise my hand. Go up there. It'll be fun. And I was frozen, glued to my seat. Now, I don't mind laughing at someone else's expense, but what was going through my head in that moment was, what if I get up there and I don't know what to do? What if I'm not funny? What if I look foolish? And most of us don't want to be perceived as foolish. We thrive on being put together. We like to be seen as in control, able to manage our lives and take care of our own needs. We don't want to do anything that's too far out of the range of acceptable and ordinary and normal for fear of looking silly or inept. The idea that we would voluntarily sign up to look ridiculous is enough to prevent most of us from stepping out of our comfort zones, even if the potential reward is great 
because the fear of embarrassment is just too high. And so we do everything that we can in life to keep it together. We resist asking for help under the belief that we can save ourselves. We work hard and dress our kids nicely and do everything that we can to appear like we have it all together. But if the past two years have taught us anything, it's pulled back the veil behind the truth of all of that. There was a, a portrait that came out at the beginning of the pandemic. There's a mom being interviewed on Zoom by a major company. And she had a professional top on and her hair was styled and there was a nice portrait hanging in the background. And later online, she posted the picture of her whole living room from that Zoom scene. And what you saw was the computer propped up on an upside down laundry basket and she in yoga pants sitting on two boxes of kids' toys with the rest of the toys and laundry strewn out everywhere and dishes all over the sink. The amount of effort that we go to to masquerade and require and try to help keep up with the Joneses, right? To keep up with the person sitting next to you in the pew or your neighbor down the street, it's exhausting. Keeping up and avoiding looking foolish has left us, as the gospel lesson today says, perishing. Paul begins, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So for those of us who have been playing by this earthly wisdom that we can do it all and be it all, for those of us toiling to keep it all together, who are trying to avoid looking foolish, but who are in fact perishing, perhaps the cross is a window into a different way. Could the upside-down foolishness of the cross, in fact, be our salvation? In 2014, uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks gave a TED Talk entitled, Should You Live for Your Resume or Your Eulogy? He argued that most of us want to live for our eulogy, for those immeasurable virtues that make us who we are and give joy and pleasure to our life. But we actually live for our resume, the things that we do that give us credit or help us to be known. And drawing on the wisdom of a Jewish rabbi in the 1960s, Brooks says that these two sides of ourselves are at war with each other. One side's logic is economic. Input leads to output. Risk leads to reward. The other logic is a moral logic, a kind of inverse logic. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender something of yourself to gain any kind of strength. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. One side is this worldly. It desires to conquer, savors accomplishment, and lives by the motto of success. The other side is humble, lives in a way that honors God and creation, and lives by a motto of love, redemption, and return. Brooks argues that how we answer that question, should you live for your resume or your eulogy, invites us to decide which power or force wins in the end. 
And Paul's letter to the Corinthians seems to be engaged in this similar kind of argument. He knew the Corinthians lived in a culture similar to ours where there were these competing narratives and values at play. And Paul knows the resume narrative all too well. He has, in fact, benefited from it. He had all the things that the culture of his day described as valuable. Roman citizen, Jew, a great orator, a man of some means privileged in all senses of the world, gaining notoriety for persecuting Christians. He had developed quite the resume. But it's not his resume that we remember him for. In fact, some of those resume items were his crosses to bear, the ones that he had to die to in order to be made new in Christ. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians as someone deeply aware of these powers at play within the culture and within himself. And using his great oratorical skill, he points to Jesus on the cross and realizes that everything that the culture seems to value gets turned on its head in Jesus. Jesus' resume was not something that was going to exactly get him a dream job in the Greco-Roman world. He was a carpenter, sure, but most of us don't really remember him for his craft. From everything we know, he was poor. There's no account of him ever earning any kind of money. He was more likely to remove his sandals and wash someone else's feet than he was to pull himself up by his bootstraps. He hung out with all the wrong people, sat at the wrong lunch tables, and in terms of being the king the Jewish people had hoped for, his kingship came as a humble rabbi who kept company with the poor and outcast and sinners. But there on the cross, Jesus' epitaph read, King of the Jews. And the world's expectations were flipped upside down. Jesus wasn't living for his resume. He wasn't even living for his eulogy. He was living in full relationship with a God whose power could not be measured by the world's standards. He trusted that it was not the wisdom of the world, but the pure love of God that had any real power at all in the end. And he embodied that power through the way he loved others throughout his life. And his relentless love continued even up to and on the cross when he said absurd, foolish things, like forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Or to the criminals next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus lived that inverse logic where surrender was his strength where his power was in his weakness, and he died at the hands of a foolish world that didn't understand the power of that kind of love. Paul begins, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is love, a radical, ridiculous love that looks foolish to the world. And the message of the cross invites us to live toward our eulogy, not our resume, to be concerned with love of God and neighbor, even to the point of looking like a fool. Because that's the way God loves you and me. God's love in Christ is so deep and wide for every single one of us, banker and beggar, 
tired mom and trans youth, governor and gang member, prisoner and police officer, refugee and even Russian. That God is willing to look foolish on the cross so that we might know the truth of that love in our very souls. Anglican preacher Sam Wells says there's only one reason that Jesus goes to the cross. It's not a grotesquely blundering coup d'etat or a naive and hapless revolution. It is an empty-handed journey across the mystery of time to win our hearts for the cause of love. And it's a completely crazy thing to do. And so perhaps the cross is an invitation for fools to rush in in the name of love. You know, a slightly less holy king, Elvis Presley, sang that. Fools rush in, though we see the danger there. If there's a chance for me, then I don't care. Fools rush in where wise men never go, because wise men never fall in love. So how will they know? When we met, I felt my life begin, so open up your heart and let this fool rush in, sang Elvis. But what happens when we open our hearts and let Christ rush in? We discover how truly, deeply, widely, foolishly we are loved by a gracious God, even to the point of death on a cross. But to draw near to the heart of Jesus is to be willing to look foolish as well. To be a Christian in today's world, to shape our lives around Christ's love made known on the cross, is to embrace the foolish love of God in a way that will look a fair bit ridiculous to your friends. The world teaches us to save, invest, take care of ourselves, and Christ teaches us to give everything away to the poor. Foolish love. The world teaches us to punish those who have wronged us, and Christ teaches us to love our enemies. Foolish love. The world teaches us that we're safe and righteous even when we surround ourselves with people just like us. And Christ invites us to befriend the outcast and the other. Foolish love. The world teaches us that time is money and we are what we do. And Christ looks upon us and says, you are already exactly as I intended. Foolish love. There is a scene in the Netflix show Sex Education that happens at a high school dance. And everyone is dressed up and is supposed to be having a wonderful time. And yet, the scene in this overly decorated high school gymnasium is full of all of these anxious students who are dressed to the nines, who aren't having any fun. And one of the main characters, Eric, a black gay student at the prep school, isn't there that night. He decided not to go to the dance. He was mad at his best friend, Otis, who had left him stranded at a birthday, and after being bullied at school and abandoned by his best friend, Eric's trust in his love for himself and anyone around him was gone. And so he skipped the dance and he planned to pout in the room, in his own room, the whole evening. But his father, the head of a very religious family, walked into Eric's room and said, you're going to church with us. 
And sitting there in church, arms crossed, unhappy about the fact that this was now how he was spending his Friday night, he started to listen, and the preacher stood up and started preaching about the ridiculous, foolish love of Christ. Now, foolishness for a manuscript preacher like myself is leaving the pulpit, but um, that's what the preacher did that day. He started to preach, and he said, God's love is greater than fear. God's love is deeper and wider than anything that you can imagine. Jesus says to love your neighbors as you love yourself, as yourself, he says. The love starts because God loved you first. And then he started to sing, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. And the choir joined in. I didn't warn them this was going to happen. And they sang, for the Bible tells me so. And the congregation joined in. You know it too. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And he started to greet the members of the congregation. And he finally got to Eric about halfway down the aisle. And he said, it is so good to see you. You are welcome here. I hope you know that Jesus loves you. And the family rode back in the minivan, and Eric walked himself upstairs to his room. His parents didn't know what was going on, and he put together the most fabulous outfit he could imagine right? Zebra-striped uh, jacket, gold lipstick, high heels, fabulous. And he traipsed down those stairs, and he said, I'm going to the dance. And his father, who had struggled to accept him for his own sexual identity, said, I'll drive you. Foolish love. And Eric parts the streamers into this high school gymnasium, right? And walks in, and he's dressed the nines for him, and suddenly realizes that he looks kind of ridiculous. And as this wave of fear rushes over him, his friend, Otis, who he's on the outs with, comes up and apologizes and says, may I have this dance? And they go out on the dance floor, and they start dancing, and Otis is a terrible dancer, like Elaine from Seinfeld quality terrible. But they are having a wonderful time. And the thing that happens is that their friends then, all these friends that are having a crummy time at the prom, they put aside their concern about looking foolish and they join the dance too. Eric knew in his heart that he was loved by God and the power of love wins when fools rush in. May we dare to know the ridiculous, foolish love of God even to death on a cross and be willing to look just a little foolish ourselves. Amen.